there are approximately 60,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. That is more than the distance of going from the west coast to the east coast of the United States 20 times. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan, and in this episode, we are going to look at how biology supports the existence of God. This episode pulls from the theme of Romans 1.20, which states that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And what this verse is saying here is that the universe and all that is in it is such sufficient evidence of God's existence that no unbeliever will have an excuse when they stand before God. Being made in God's image, all humans understand deep down that the complex nature of the universe demands a creator. Even though some people have convinced themselves that there is not enough scientific evidence for God, Romans 1.20 tells us that these people are in error. They are so wrong, in fact, that if they try to claim that it was a lack of evidence which prevented them from pursuing God and accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God will not accept that excuse and will still punish them in hell for eternity due to their sin. We will examine characteristics of different organisms which demonstrate that it is foolishness to believe that the complexity present in biology came into existence without intelligent design. The examples we will look at relate to a concept known as irreducible complexity which is the idea that some biological systems are so complex that if you were to take just one thing away from them, they would not work, and therefore the entire organism would die. Because evolution depends on small changes over time, irreducible complexity is one of the most popular blows against evolution that is used by proponents of intelligent design. If something is irreducibly complex, that means it is an all-or-nothing deal. Either everything has to be working and in order at the exact same time, or the entire process would fail. Now, let's get started. The first organism we will look at is the butterfly. We are specifically going to look at how a caterpillar transforms into a butterfly within its cocoon. I will now read from an article published by Scientific American, which is titled, How Does a Caterpillar Turn Into a Butterfly? And this article was written by Ferris Jabber and published on August 10th of 2012. It states the following. As children, many of us learn about the wondrous process by which a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly. The caterpillar stuffs itself with leaves, growing plumper and longer through a series of molts in which it sheds its skin. One day, the caterpillar stops eating, hangs upside down from a twig or leaf, 
and spins itself a silky cocoon or molts into a shiny chrysalis. Within its protective casing, the caterpillar radically transforms its body, eventually emerging as a butterfly or moth. But what does that radical transformation entail? How does a caterpillar rearrange itself into a butterfly? What happens inside a chrysalis or cocoon? First, the caterpillar digests itself, releasing enzymes to dissolve all of its tissues. If you were to cut open a cocoon or chrysalis at just the right time, caterpillar soup would ooze out. Certain highly organized groups of cells, known as imaginal discs, survive the digestive process. Once a caterpillar has disintegrated all of its tissues except for the imaginal discs, those discs use the protein-rich soup all around them to fuel the rapid cell division required to form the wings, antennae, legs, eyes, genitals, and all the other features of an adult butterfly or moth. So, in the case of the butterfly, we have a slow, chubby caterpillar, which literally disintegrates itself into a soup-like substance and then puts itself back together into a beautiful creature that can fly. Since the godless idea of macroevolution depends on small changes over time, the butterfly life cycle poses a great challenge to atheism. The entire process of metamorphosis had to have worked from the very beginning. Otherwise, the organism would simply dissolve itself into a soup and die. While there are different types of metamorphosis, metamorphosis in general is an all-or-nothing process because if it does not work, then the organism ceases to exist. It is much more logical to conclude that metamorphosis is the result of intelligent design rather than random mutations. Now, I want to talk about the kidneys because these things are amazing. The website for the University of Rochester's Medical Center notes that the kidneys remove waste products called urea from the blood through tiny filtering units called nephrons. There are about 1 million nephrons in each kidney. Each nephron consists of a ball formed of small blood capillaries called a glomerulus and a small tube called a renal tube. Blood enters the glomerulus and is filtered there. Of course, the whole process of kidney filtration would be pointless if the circulatory system did not work because then no blood would be able to get to the kidneys in the first place. Concerning the circulatory system, there are approximately 60,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. That is more than the distance of going from the west coast to the east coast of the United States 20 times. Not only that, but the average human heart beats over 40 million times in only one year. Concerning the heart's ability to pump blood, the University of Michigan Health's website notes that your heart is divided into two separate pumping systems, the right side and the left side. The right side of your heart receives oxygen-poor blood from your veins and pumps it to your lungs, 
where it picks up oxygen and gets rid of carbon dioxide. The left side of your heart receives oxygen-rich blood from your lungs and pumps it through your arteries to the rest of your body. What's interesting is that the circulatory system works different when a baby is in the womb as compared to after it's born. Stanford Children's Health notes that during pregnancy, the fetal circulatory system works differently than after birth. The fetus is connected by the umbilical cord to the placenta. This is the organ that develops and implants in the mother's uterus during pregnancy. Through the blood vessels in the umbilical cord, the fetus gets all needed nutrition and oxygen. The fetus gets life support from the mother through the placenta. Waste products and carbon dioxide from the fetus are sent back through the umbilical cord and placenta to the mother's circulation to be removed. And of course, the entire circulatory system would be pointless if the respiratory system did not work because then no oxygen would get to the blood in the first place, which the average human takes over 8 million breaths every year. There's also approximately half a billion alveoli in the human lungs, which are tiny air sacs where gas is exchanged. Come to think of it, since both the heart and the diaphragm are muscles, neither the circulatory system or the respiratory system would work if the muscular system wasn't there. The irony is that the circulatory and respiratory system have to exist in order for the muscular system to function properly, seeing as these two systems carry oxygen and nutrients to the muscles. Speaking of, there are more than 600 muscles in the human body, and skeletal muscle relies on electric impulses produced by the nervous system to contract. Muscles are also vital for getting nutrients through the digestive system, which, as we all know, an organism that does not eat and take in energy is a dead organism. Thankfully, our stomachs produce very strong acid that dissolves food before it moves through the intestines, where the nutrients get absorbed and then transferred back into the blood. Hence, the digestive system and circulatory system are also dependent on each other. And this is just scratching the surface of a few of the systems found in our bodies. We didn't even mention the endocrine or lymphatic or nervous system. And even the systems that we did mention, we could have gone way more in depth on how complex they are. And the point of all this is to show that the human body, life itself, is so complex that to believe there is no intelligent design behind it is absurd. That's why I believe God when he says in Psalms that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it's a shame that so many people have deceived themselves into thinking that science is in conflict with God's existence, when in reality, the exact opposite is true. Science demonstrates the necessity of God. All of life is so complex that it has never been created in a lab. We have never observed life come from non-life, and if we cannot even create life from non-life in a laboratory under controlled conditions, it is a denial of the evidence to believe that life could have come from non-life somewhere in the past in nature. Just as Psalm 139.14 says, 
You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The next organism we will look at is the woodpecker. I will now play a four minute clip from a presentation done by Dr. Thomas Kendall, where he discusses the irreducibly complex design of the woodpecker. Here it is. Now here we have the western flicker, which is a woodpecker. And woodpeckers are amazing birds in that God has endowed them with many physiological and anatomical attributes to allow them to make a living as a flying jackhammer, which is no small feat because if you are an ordinary bird and you try to play jackhammer, you will crack your bill and crush your skull and turn your brains in the mush very quick. And that's not very good for survival value. And uh, you need much more than that even to be successful as a woodpecker. Now, the woodpecker has very unique and different features from ordinary birds. For one thing, it has unusual tail feathers, short, much stiffer than normal. They actually buttress into the side of the tree trunk to give it a kind of a tripod stamp so it can hammer into hardwood very effectively. They have unusual feet in that they have two toes forward and two toes in the rear, kind of a pincher design. Most birds, you'll notice, have three toes forward and one in the rear, which is great for perching and for walking. But when you need to move around on the outside of an old dead tree trunk with no bark, you need to pinch right into that wood. And they can move around with the utmost dexterity and never fall off because of their amazing feet. And it is an amazing feat that they can do that. Feel pardon the pun. Anyway, <clears throat> they have a uniquely durable beak, much thicker than normal birds, sharpened like a chisel, and inside, the microscopic examination shows all kind of cross braces to give it strength and resiliency so it won't crack and won't break under a tremendous g-forces that it has to endure. Now we know in physics that uh, energy will transfer through a solid surface and transmit from the beak into the brain case, which will crack the skull and turn the brains into mush. So you have to have something there. Chance just has to provide a very special shock absorber in between the beak and the skull case. Even that is not sufficient in itself. The skull of the woodpecker has to be very unique, very robust, very much thicker than normal, having those cross braces to give it resiliency and strength, and it has an internal shock-absorbing lining to protect the brain. So you don't get brain contusions as you're hammering into wood hundreds of times a minute, exerting tremendous g-forces. In some cases, the uh, some woodpeckers actually have tendons that will grab a hold of the brain and suspend it while it's hammering so the brain doesn't slam in to the interior of the skull. Now, of course, without that, you would die very quick trying to play jackhammer. In addition to that, if you don't have exceptionally strong neck muscles, it's all an object lesson in futility. Everything else there, you might not die, but you won't succeed. You have to have sufficient strength. All of this had to be there simultaneously for the woodpecker to survive and to be successful in drilling holes into hard wood. But even then, he's not successful. When he's tapping on the wood, the wood-boring insects can hear, ah, the woodpecker's out there. They have their little escape chutes that they run down, stick out their little legs, and say, nobody's going to pull me out. So you have to have a long tongue to pull them out. Now, first of all, I want to point out, the woodpeckers endure G-forces that are almost unbelievable. Up to a 1,000 G's of force hundreds of times per minute. Now, to put that in perspective, fighter pilots train very hard, they work out, they're very physically fit, but in dogfighting, if they're pulling a sustained turn at 9 or 10 Gs, the blood will drain out of their head, they'll pass out and die after usually just several seconds. You can't do those maneuvers very long before it takes its toll. Uh, in the case of our missiles, 
Air-to-air dogfighting missiles have to maneuver faster than any other missile going after an aircraft that's trying to evade the missile. Very tight turns, uh, turns producing tremendous G-forces, and they've engineered them to withstand 60 Gs of force in a tight turn without breaking up in the air. Uh, that's pretty impressive. This bird does 1,000 Gs of force hundreds of times a minute and apparently doesn't even get a headache. To me, that's superior engineering, to say the least. And to pull from another source, I'm just going to read a brief paragraph from the website of the Field Museum of Chicago, which is a secular museum of natural history. And concerning woodpeckers, they say, True to their name, woodpeckers hammer away at wood with their beaks. And when they do, they can experience forces of 1,200 to 1,400 Gs. In contrast, a force of 60 to 100 Gs can give a human a concussion. The astonishing fact that a woodpecker can undergo 14 times that without getting hurt has led helmet makers to model their designs on these birds' skulls. So, in the case of the woodpecker, everything, the extra tough beak, the efficient neck muscles, the skull strength, all has to be present at the same time in order to function properly. As noted by the Field Museum, even helmet makers have tried to model their helmets after the skulls of woodpeckers because they are so efficient. In the case of explaining the existence of the woodpecker, atheism is simply a failure. A belief in God is much more supported by the evidence. Another wonder of biology is the octopus. The octopus is a marvelous creature for many reasons, but one reason in particular is that if an octopus loses its arm, it can regrow it. An article published on creation.com by David Catchpole does well to explain this biological phenomenon. David Catchpole states that the ability of the octopus to regenerate lost tissue, organs, and whole appendages has attracted much research interest. While much of the complex biochemistry is still a mystery, what is known is that a cascade of chemical signals is involved in the orchestrating of multiple specific steps. These trigger and control, for example, the arrival of a mass of stem cells and blood vessels at the injury site, and their subsequent mobilization and disappearance from there as the arm is progressively restored. In a biochemical cascade, each step is dependent on the one before it, raising a problem for the evolutionary view of origins. If any step is missing or faulty, the system does not work, leaving no evident reason for natural selection to ostensibly have favored the hypothetical intermediate stages. So how could such a marvelous repair and regeneration system, which is there in anticipation of limb loss, have ever arisen by neo-Darwinian step-by-step evolution? And I think that's a really great question that the article poses. Evolution depends on unguided, blind, random mutations 
affecting the genome of organisms, which supposedly produces new organs and organ systems over a vast amount of time. But how in the world would a function like regeneration ever arise from randomness? That is a specific controlled action. I mean, imagine losing an arm and then growing it back. Well, that's exactly what the octopus can do. And so here we should ask ourselves a question. What takes more faith to believe? That this amazing process came about by randomness? Or that this process exists because there is an intelligent designer? Think about if there was a computer that existed, and if you broke that computer, it would fix itself. That would be a marvel of technology. And here we see regeneration in the octopus, but atheists believe that that came about without any god whatsoever. Now, obviously, I would take the position that to believe regeneration came about without an intelligent designer is to simply ignore logic and rationality, and that that position takes much more blind faith than the position of theism. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. I hope the information you heard today helped strengthen your faith in God and allowed you to see that if we examine the complexity found in biology, the evidence overwhelmingly points to God's existence. I also encourage you to look into irreducible complexity yourself because we really just scratched the surface in this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye.